Welcome to The Conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and patients. In this series, QSource addresses adverse drug events known as ADEs. This is when someone is harmed by a medicine. Pharmacist John Pouliot, Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Lipscomb University, shares his experience and knowledge about ADEs in a series of conversations with QSource Quality Improvement Advisor Don Gettinger. Our guest speaker also maintains a practice site at Williamson Medical Center in Franklin, Tennessee, and his practice interests include emergency medicine, transitions of care, infectious diseases, pain management, and adverse drug effect prevention. It is important to understand that anticoagulant medications may be as helpful as they are harmful, depending on a nursing home resident's health. In this episode, the conversation is about anticoagulant use in long-term care, methods for determining risk and benefits of use, as well as a review of common medications and alternate considerations for patients' treatment that can minimize side effects. Now, let's get this conversation started. So, John, let's get right into it. Um, can we start it with a review of anticoagulants? Yeah, great. That sounds good. So, anticoagulants are uh, kind of by common terms called uh, blood thinners. Um, and so they work uh, specifically in the blood on the what we call the coagulation cascade in the blood. These are a series of proteins that interact with each other in the blood and form clots when there's an injury. And so sometimes these clots form when they aren't necessary. And so in those cases, we will sometimes use medications to inhibit that clotting cascade or the coagulation cascade. Our anticoagulants are a class of medications, generally speaking, but they they do there are different mechanisms for how they will affect the coagulation cascade. So it's important to be thinking through some of those basic differences. And we'll go through that later on in the talk, I'm sure. Uh, one other thing to note about anticoagulants is that they are different than uh, antiplatelet medications. So antiplatelet medications are um, are used uh, for some crossover conditions, um, but these medications like Plavix or aspirin um, are going to affect the ability of platelets to stick to each other. Um, that can have an impact on clot formation, but our anticoagulants are going to be a more potent um, blood thinner for to, to use that term. Uh, and so it's important to differentiate between those two. A lot of times in practice and, and even, you know, in, in different practice settings, we will um, kind of put them together as all anticoagulants because uh, they cause bleeding. Um, but uh, I think it's an important distinction to make. As far as use in practice, uh, anticoagulants are used in a more uh, narrow way than antiplatelets are. Um, because they are more high risk for bleeding than antiplatelets are, they typically are used in two main categories. The first category are patients that are at an unusually high risk of forming a clot inappropriately. So not when there's an injury, but when there's not an injury and a clot forms. One of the main conditions where this occurs in is atrial fibrillation. So it's a, um, a an arrhythmia of the heart that causes blood to pool in a part of the heart. And whenever blood pools and hangs out and is not fluidly moving, uh, those coagulation proteins can interact more and can cause a clot. 
Uh, and so we want, we will sometimes use anticoagulant medications to prevent clot formation in patients with atrial fibrillation. Um, and then the other main reason why we would use anticoagulants is for a clot act that has actually formed. And so the, the umbrella term for that is venous thromboembolism, um, but we break that down into a pulmonary embolism, which is a clot that lodges in the vasculature of the lungs or a clot that forms usually in a deep vein of the legs. Uh, so that's a clot is actually formed, and we will use an anticoagulant not to break down the clot um, that's already formed, but to prevent the clot from growing further and to allow our body time to clear the clot that's formed. There are some other minor uses of anticoagulants um, in genetic disorders that would affect that coagulation protein um, cascade. Um, but the two main thing, the two main conditions that we would see in a long-term care patient would be stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation, and then our the clot formation and venous thromboembolism. There was a lot there. Like I was yeah. really kind of surprised the um, the different that aspirin is not in this necessarily in this category. It's one of the things I, I just take low dose aspirin uh, for heart health and and maybe kind of that preventive medicine, but um, I've always considered it an anticoagulant, so that was an interesting point, but it's not really in this category. Um, so given, you know, that they, this is a specific category of medicines, what are some of the ways that you use to determine the risks and the benefits of using anticoagulants? That's a great question. Uh, and this is an in incredibly important conversation on risk and benefits with these medications, specifically in elderly patients and in long-term care patients, because these are gonna be patients that if they have a bleeding event, it's typically gonna be more severe for them than a younger patient population. And so a few of the things that we do, if we're, if we're dealing with a patient with atrial fibrillation and we wanna start an anticoagulant in them, um, we have a scoring system that we can use to determine the risk of their, um, their, their risk of forming a clot. Uh, it's called a CHADS-VASC score, and in essence, it just looks at the patient's age and sex and other uh, disease states to determine how likely are they, um, what is their risk of actually forming a clot with this atrial fibrillation. And the higher the score is, the more likely the, the, the instance of a clot formation is. And so as that score gets higher, it becomes more of a benefit to start an anticoagulant medication for those patients. Um, but if that score is really low, that would help us to say, okay, we know this patient's risk of bleeding is high. Um, let's have a conversation about whether we want to start this agent, given that the risk of, of clotting and stroke is, is so low. Uh, we also have scores similarly that will uh, or, or kind of stratify patients in terms of bleeding risk. But the, the big thing is, and I think that's outside of the scope of this conversation, the big thing that we want to take away is that this risk-benefit conversation should be happening on a regular basis. And how long-term care providers and long-term care staff members can be involved in this is to be asking the question about, hey, how, are we still feeling good about anticoagulation in this patient? Um, they've fallen three times in the last week. They've got a bruise. They're, things have changed. Um, and elevating those kinds of concerns up to the provider level so that they can make the best decision for the patient. That's a great point. I mean, it's it's not just the, the prescribing providers that have a role in this. It's really all of the staff taking care of our patients. That Absolutely. Um, 
So you mentioned, or actually, so you said there's a lot of different different types of these anticoagulants. Can you go over some of the common ones? And how sure. are they? Yeah, I, so there's two. There's one thing that I, when we talk about the agents that I think is important to talk about and something that we might see some in the long-term care facility, particularly in patients that are uh, chronically bedridden, is the idea that um, these medications can be dosed in two different, or some of the medications can be dosed in two different ways. We would differentiate treatment dosing, which is would be for the things that I've talked about already, and prophylaxis dosing, which is typically lower dose of our um, injectable agents, uh, and that is to prevent clots from forming uh, in the legs and so forth in patients that are are not that are bed bound or not mobile, um, and so. It's important to kind of differentiate because we can use these medications to as a prophylaxis and we can also use them as a treatment. Um, the, the common injectable agents, I'm not going to go through all of them, but the two most common injectable agents uh, for anticoagulation are heparin and anoxaparin or Lovenox. Heparin is, is a, a, an agent that in the inpatient side is used as a continuous infusion um, for treatment. Uh, in the long-term care setting, we typically wouldn't see, you know, a continuous infusion of heparin, but we do sometimes see heparin used as uh, a prophylactic. Uh, it's given at a lower dose and it's given subcutaneously. So it's always, we would never give either of these agents intravenously. Um, we're not often going to have IV lines in patients in the long-term care setting, um, but these would be given subcutaneously for prophylaxis. Anoxaparin can be given subcutaneously for both treatment and prophylaxis. Um, and it is kind of our flagship injectable anticoagulant now. It, it tends to have a lower bleeding profile than heparin. Um, it's a little bit more stable, and so you can give it once a day or twice a day in, in terms of treatment or prophylaxis. Um, and we don't have to do as much monitoring for it. When it comes to oral agents, there's probably been a pretty a substantial paradigm shift in how we uh, use our oral anticoagulant agents uh, in the last 10 years. Historically, the, the, the flagship drug uh, for oral anticoagulation was warfarin or Coumadin, um, or some of my, my patients will say that rat poison stuff. Uh, um, but uh, it, is, it was historically the standard of care, and it is just a messy drug for so many reasons, and specifically in the long-term care setting, it is a messy drug. It works differently than all of the rest of our anticoagulants. In essence, what warfarin does is it decreases the production of those coagulation proteins in the liver, and so it takes a long time for the drug to actually work. So it takes four or five days for warfarin to really exert its effect versus all of our other anticoagulant agents, including our new oral agents, work once it gets into the blood. And so the problems with warfarin are probably too many to list in a short podcast like this, but very close monitoring is required. There's tons of drug interactions, um, including drug uh, interactions that could additively increase the risk of bleeding. There's also a lot of food interactions with warfarin. Um, and even if it's taken appropriately, it tends to have a higher bleeding risk than all of our other anticoagulants. And so for this reason, we're really not using warfarin too much anymore. A lot of our, our guidelines are recommending against its use uh, and in favor of uh, some of our newer agents, but you still might see warfarin used more in the long-term care setting because the patient is, for lack of a better term, a captive audience. And so 
these patients are going to be able to be monitored closely and, and uh, labs drawn more frequently. And so sometimes because you get more control with warfarin and there's more monitoring, sometimes providers will prefer it in long-term care patients. <clears throat> in terms of other oral agents, um, we have a, a class of medication called DOAX or direct oral anticoagulants. And these are just the way they seem. They're in comparison to warfarin that works indirectly and takes days to work. These agents will work as soon as they get to the, into the bloodstream. There's four agents in this class, and I'll just cover them very, very briefly. There's dabigatran or pradaxa, rivaroxaban, or, um, oh man, my brand name stuff is, is a little bit uh, faded. Um, apixaban, uh, which is eliquis, and adoxaban. Um, dabigatran and adoxaban are not commonly used. Dabigatran was the first one to the market, but it has a little bit of a higher bleeding risk than the others. Um, it's twice a day agent. Um, it has a different mechanism and it's a little bit harder to reverse that agent. So it has kind of fallen out of favor. The two most common ones used in practice are rivaroxaban and apixaban. Uh, these agents are well tolerated um, and there's some differences between them. Um, but for the most part, these are going to be the two main agents that take care of 95% of um, oral anticoagulant use. Okay, thank you. And so, I mean, talking about those different medications and, and how there's some differences, how they work directly or indirectly, um, but you also mentioned earlier that um, maybe not all of them work the same way either. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about how they do work? Um, and if that changes the risks and benefits, depending on the medication. Sure, yeah. Um, so DOAX, the DOAX work directly on those proteins. So in essence, what they do is they stop that cascade, that interaction of proteins in the blood. And so in that way, they directly will stop the formation of a clot versus warfarin that works indirectly to decrease the production of those proteins, but warfarin has no effect in the actual bloodstream. Um, our injectable agents are gonna work really similarly to our, our direct agents as well. Um, how that shakes out is warfarin just becomes more difficult to make dose adjustments for. Um, there's a, t a lot more monitoring for um, warfarin than the others. Um, in terms of a long-term care focus, Warfarin probably has the highest bleeding risk of all of our anticoagulant agents. And so in patients that maybe have decreased mobility or are at falls risk, um, it would be not a preferred agent for that reason. Um, and then the rest of them, dabigatran might have a slightly higher bleeding risk uh, than the others. Um, and so really in practice, apixaban and rivaroxaban are going to be the two agents. A couple other um, differences, rivaroxaban is a is a once-a-day medication, so there's some convenience with that. Um, one of the downsides to that medication is that it has to be given with a large meal, and so in our long-term care patients that might eat small meals or might have uh, dietary uh, restrictions, rivaroxaban or Xarelto is the brand name, finally came to me. <laughs> um, Xarelto would be a, a poor option in those patients. Um, because it can have like a 40% change in its absorption based on whether it's given with a meal or not. Um, and then a pixaban is, uh, uh, or Eliquis, has probably the lowest bleeding 
profile of all of the agents, and it tends to be a lot safer in patients with kidney disease and in elderly patients. Uh, and so it tends to be a more preferred option in patients that have kidney disease or are elderly and their kidneys are getting older. Okay, so you talked a little bit about this then. Are there some other management strategies uh, when anticoagulants are used in a long-term care setting? Sure, I think the big thing is to do that risk-benefit assessment, and I can't uh, stress enough how important it is for the staff uh, and the providers and nurses um, at the site that are interacting with the patients daily um, to, to, to be part of that conversation about risk-benefit of these agents, because they are high-risk medications, um, and this patient population is going to be more severely impacted by a bleeding event than other populations. I think it's important to think about choosing medications based on patient-specific factors. So the provider, when they're prescribing an anticoagulant, might not be thinking about the patient's diet. Um, and so, but somebody that is in dietary or is taking care of the patient directly might have good information on that. So it would be important to speak up about that because it could help help the provider make a better decision about a, recommend, a medication. Um, it's important to do falls risk assessment, obviously, and do falls prevention. So thinking about some of the other medications that we've talked about in this series that increase risk of falls um, and how they can be um, how they can be minimized. Uh, we want to think about drug interactions, um, and so holistically about the medications, and so engaging pharmacy and providers into, especially if we're going to be using warfarin, anytime somebody starts a new medication or changes their food um, or, or uh, uh, over-the-counter medications, it would be important to have a conversation about that with somebody that was on warfarin. And then doing good education with your staff and your patients about bleeding risk. What are some things to minimize bleeding risk? What are some things to assess bleeding? What are some cutoffs for when we should be reporting bleeding? Hey, I've had a bloody nose for two hours. That's probably something that needs to be reported. Um, and so really doing some good education around um, just elevating the conversation about the use of anticoagulants and their impact on patients. They are beneficial medications um, they prevent strokes and they prevent um, pulmonary embolisms, which can be fatal. Uh, and so they're good medications, but we're wielding a sword, for lack of a better term, and it's important to know that it's sharp. That's a great metaphor. Um, and, and again, just reiterating, reiterating that all of our staff um, have a role to play in the management of this. So, John, you talked about how warfarin is an older agent and pretty messy. Um, if the staff or a patient thinks the patient might need to be moved off it, what are some of the considerations um, for a patient to get them moved to a newer agent? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's a question that we get from um, providers a decent amount and certainly from patients and family members, not just in long-term care, but other uh, in other settings. The first thing is that um, warfarin is now recommended at a lower rating uh, than other agents from national and international guideline perspectives. Uh, and so it really is not a preferred agent. So that's one tact that you can use as a conversation piece with providers. Another um, another option, uh, another discussion is that it it's lower, it's the newer agents have less bleeding. Um, you know, and also um, a lot of our Medicare, Medicaid insurance companies are covering these agents because overall cost is lower because they're not having to do blood tests and things like that. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of reasons to have that conversation. I think the biggest one is that we now have drugs that are better, uh, better for patients, safer for patients, have less interactions, um, especially if they're on a lot of medication, other medications, um, and there's no food interactions with these agents. Um, and the cost should be pretty comparable when you think about it. So all those are reasons to, um, to be included in the conversation about that. Wonderful. Thank you. That's so important in the care of our, our, our residents and patients in the long-term care settings is that, um, that all staff have a role and, and all staff are important to the health of the, the patients. So is there anything else you want to say about anticoagulants? We covered quite a lot. Um, and I don't necessarily know if I don't have any other questions for you. Well, I appreciate it. I think that covers it as well as we can in such a short period of time. Absolutely. Uh, we could definitely, if you have specific questions about anticoagulants, we'd be glad to talk to you um, about how, how you can improve the use in your facilities. Um, we have a lot of staff and expertise that can help you work through some of those issues. Um, but in this podcast setting, I think that's probably quite a lot of detail, more than we want to go into. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank John for sharing this information with us today. And thank all of our listeners for joining the Conversation Podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the conversation. If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org forward slash podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Contents does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.